Wait, what am I saying? <laughs> You're listening. Oh. You're, You're listening, listening to. <laughs> You're listening to discourse. 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 From from NPR. NPR. Amaranek Public Radio. The Catcher in the Rye, author J.D. Salinger's magnum opus, tells the story of Holden Caulfield, a troubled teenage boy over the course of three watershed days. While one of the most famed novels of the 20th century, Catcher's legacy is a very controversial one. Much of the reason for this is because of how universally beloved Holden was among young people. Holden was the quintessential anti-hero. He is foul-mouthed, amoral, lacks ambition, alludes too frequently to sex, and has a knack for getting himself kicked out of boarding schools across the Northeast. He hails from an upper-crust Manhattan family, yet feels very strongly like he doesn't belong among such company. He suffers very obviously from a number of potential undiagnosed mental illnesses, although none are explicitly mentioned, at least not until the novel's very end. Holden rejected authority and the established social order. Members of the famously socially conservative silent generation couldn't bear the idea of their children lionizing such a delinquent. They feared Holden Caulfield would inspire a generation of teenage anarchists. Unfortunately, these concerns weren't entirely wrong. The perpetrators of four different attempted murders were discovered to be superfans of the novel. Mark David Chapman identified so heavily with Holden Caulfield that he conspired to kill several celebrities he thought to be phonies, a term Holden uses throughout the novel to describe everyone from frat bros to the bourgeoisie. Eventually, Chapman murdered John Lennon with a copy of the book in his hands. Obviously, idolizing Holden to that extent is something I condemn absolutely, but it's hard to be a teenager and not see at least a little bit of yourself in him. On the surface, Holden and I have very little in common. Holden is a punk. He smokes cigarettes incessantly. He is a terrible student. He has trouble caring about anything and can't seem to find a single thing he enjoys. In contrast, I've always been a fairly straight-laced, hard-working student and someone who enjoys a number of productive hobbies as well. Holden struggles to relate to other people especially kids his own age. I'd like to think of myself as quite extroverted and a people person. Despite our glaring differences, when I read Catcher in the Rye for the first time as a freshman in high school, I couldn't help but feel like I was reading a story about myself. Sudden outbursts of anger and irrational hatred for incredibly insignificant things and the sense that oneself is always correct were all things I could relate to. I've since reread the book a few times though and what I now relate to the most is not his adolescent temper. It's that Holden is lost. For 72 hours, he aimlessly wanders the streets of Manhattan, yelling at the world, ignorant of his own insufferable qualities. He can't connect with people, despite how badly he obviously wants to. Rather than acknowledge that his social struggles are at all his own fault, Holden points the finger the other way, developing a universal hatred for everyone around him. His cynicism spirals into a depressive trance and blinds him from his insecurities, of which there are many. His fear of growing up, his yearning to be loved and accepted, and his traumatic obsession with death cloud his foresight and inhibit him from finding a purpose. 
Holden's inability to determine what he is looking for in life is what drives his erratic behavior. But while his decision to run away from school is certainly destructive, it is what ultimately forces him to confront his issues and puts him on the path to recovery. Catcher in the Rye closes with Holden narrating from a mental institution, where he is presumably getting help after his psychological state worsened to a point of dysfunction. In order to find himself, he had to accept being lost. This past spring, I had a soul-searching episode of my own. Towards the end of my sophomore year, I made a new group of friends and inadvertently neglected my existing relationships. I spent that summer and the beginning of the following fall trying to navigate my social situation without leaving anyone behind. Then, during the spring of my junior year, the pandemic hit, and the social life I had been working so hard to get under control completely disintegrated. For months, quarantine day dragged into quarantine night. Spring came and went, and in the blink of an eye, I was about to start my senior year. Despite every effort I had made, I lost touch with the people who had been my best friends for years. In 12 months, we'd all be off at college meeting new people, and relationships already hanging by a thread would be severed by the hands of time. I had spent months living in an awkward limbo between past and present. In an attempt to be everyone's best friend, I had become no one's. To cope with my quarantine boredom, I began driving through different suburbs at night, trying to get lost. I would take a random exit off the highway and just keep making turns until I had forgotten where I came from. My initial thought was that trying to find my way back would give me something to do and allow me to take my mind off the ironic tragedy that had become the final chapters of my adolescent social life. In time, though, I realized I couldn't not think about it. So rather than fight the urge to reminisce, I let my mind wander, and I fell in love with being lost. Physically, I had no idea where I was. But emotionally, I was in a place where I couldn't do anything about what was bothering me. All of the time spent alone in the car gave me the space I needed to just let my subconscious take over. I didn't actively think as much as I got lost in memories and imaginings of the future. I didn't force myself to find my way in an emotional or a physical sense. There was something so liberating in relinquishing control and just letting myself let go. Giving myself the time to just exist in that state allowed me to reflect and draw a more important conclusion about relationships and life in general. In my car, I was holding in Central Park as he pondered what changes within us when we grow up. I slowly became comfortable with the fact that relationships are not evergreen and that we can't hang on to what's behind us. While it wasn't a mental breakdown that made me understand the situation I was in, I had an equally powerful epiphany weaving through dark suburban streets. As humans, we crave control over our own lives, over the lives of others, over nature. We invent laws and religions and government in an attempt to keep things under control. 
We see psychiatrists who give us medication to keep ourselves under control. But control is an illusion. No matter how hard we try, we cannot predict the future, and we can never be completely in control. Holden hated what he couldn't control. Death, love, other people. For him, coming to terms with his own impotence meant running away from reality, living the life of someone he wasn't, trying to find who he really was. I took a different, less destructive road than Holden, but our transformations were the same. I wanted so badly to rule my own life, to decide who came in and out of it and when. In order to be at peace, I had to let go of the myth of control. After all, it's impossible to find yourself without first letting yourself be lost.